senior minister here. It is wonderful to have you at church today. Uh, Genesis 3. Um, at our house, we love cooking shows. Um, one of our favorites is MasterChef. I have a picture that's almost correct. Oh, I've just switched it off. Uh, MasterChef. Um, uh, MasterChef, of course, is a cooking show where... Um, one by one, the contestants get eliminated. One of the elimination challenges that's the, the really exciting one is when they have the uh, taste test. And uh, normally they taste a very complex dish and you have to say one of the ingredients that's in the dish. And so, of course, you know, some of the easy parts might be the lamb or the chicken. But, um, but once it gets down to the spices and the little things, well, that's when people get eliminated. And, of course, the mystery dish, uh, dish is always very complex, something Asian, something Indian, something built with layers and layers of subtle flavors. And inevitably, somebody gets it wrong. Uh, well, our Bible passage today is kind of like a complex dish. Um, a mystery, not a mystery dish, but um, it's a dish with lots of components and lots of elements. And uh, as I was preparing, there were so many things I wanted to say um, and so many things that I could say, but we don't have time. And there might be questions that you want me to answer today that I'm not going to answer, even though you can see the, the element or the ingredient there in the passage. So I'm, as, I'm aware that... Uh, I may not answer all your questions today and that makes it a good, a good reason to go to Bible study this week and perhaps you have a chance to discuss it there in your group um, or perhaps if you're uh, not in a group or your group's doing something different, take a moment, get a coffee with somebody and take a chance to think about those questions that this passage raises. Because this passage that we just read, that Peter read for us, um, it describes the fall, it describes original sin or whatever you want to call it. And it's a passage that's very important to us because it describes our story uh, in the world. Um, each of us follow in the, the footsteps of Adam and Eve um, when it comes to rebelling against God. And this passage helps us to understand who we are and uh, why we need Jesus so much. So why don't we pray that God would speak to our hearts this morning as we open his word, that he would teach us not only about sin, but remind us about grace. So let us pray. Loving Father, as we come to this part of the Bible that many of us know so well, help us not to push you away, but instead help us to hear your word afresh. Will you remind us of your goodness and of your authority over us and of our great need for you? Teach us about our sinfulness, but also about your great love. And we pray this in Jesus' saving name. Amen. First big idea is questioning God. Um, so over the last few weeks, we've been dipping into Genesis 1 to 11, those foundational chapters of the Bible that tell us so much about who we are and who God is and, and what He's created us for and how God wants us to live in this world. And uh, up till now, everything has been good. It was good, it was good, it was very good, God declares over every part of creation. But Genesis 3 begins with a serpent, questioning whether everything is as good as God says it is. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? I think perhaps the first big surprise of Genesis 3 is this serpent. Where did he come from? And why can he talk? Was that normal for the creatures to talk? Was the serpent evil? And, and if so, how did this evil being come to be in God's perfect and unspoiled garden? As those who've read the New Testament, we actually see 
the serpent through the eyes of the New Testament. He's identified as the devil in the book of Revelation. Um, The Revelation says that great dragon who was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Well, that's how the New Testament sees this serpent, but I don't think that's what Adam and Eve see. I think they see a serpent, one of the creatures. So Genesis 3, 1 tells that the serpent was more crafty than any of the animals the Lord God had made. But we assume even though he's more crafty, he's still one of the animals that the Lord God has made. Was the serpent evil? Well, that's an interesting one. Here we're told the serpent was crafty. Um, Do you know Pharaoh used the same word to describe Moses, uh, sorry, to, to describe Joseph, but in a positive way. He said Joseph was discerning and wise. That word for discerning, same word as crafty. Same word is used for Solomon's wisdom in 1 Kings chapter 4. And Jesus taught his disciples when they went on a mission, he said, be as shrewd as snakes. Same word again uh, in Greek, not in Hebrew, but same word, same idea. And to be as innocent as doves. So was the serpent evil? Well, I don't think that's how he's described here. He's described as crafty. Was he the devil? Well, again, looking at the text in front of us, perhaps looking through Adam and Eve's eyes, it doesn't appear like he was, does it? He just looks like one of the creatures, this serpent. So commentator David Atkinson, he writes this. He says, in Genesis 3, the snake does not appear as the devil. The voice of temptation is not the voice of evil. If Satan is present, he is carefully masked. He's hidden in the everydayness of a creature in the garden. And I think that's how temptation often comes to us. Um, we're not usually faced with this snarling devil who offers us the desires of our hearts with his, you know, his little horns and things like that. Instead, he appears as something much less dangerous, something much more everyday. And so it's in the company of friends or business partners that we find ourselves in a compromising situation. You know, whether it's overindulgence or unhelpful conversation or an unexpected moment of connection with somebody who we find attractive. Or perhaps temptation comes to us in the form of good things, the desire for comfort that leads to overspending or overeating to compensate, or the desire for status that leads us to, leads us to pride or to tread on others to get what we want. Perhaps it's the desire for wealth that leads us to covetousness or greed. Or perhaps it's the desire for attention that leads us to romantic fantasies about somebody more than what we already have. See, the voice of temptation is usually hidden in the ordinariness of our daily routines. And that's why the devil's so crafty. He hits us when our defenses are down. He doesn't turn up as a beast. He turns up as one who subtly whispers in the ordinary things. And he questions whether there's anything wrong with doing what we're tempted to do. So the snake says, did did God really say you mustn't eat from any tree in the garden the tempter causes us to doubt God's word and the goodness of God's word and by the way the tempter is what Satan is called in Matthew chapter 4 verse 3 when he's tempting Jesus and Jesus famously responded by remembering that man doesn't live by bread alone but by every word that comes out of God's mouth Jesus trusted God's word but here the serpent undermines God's word 
Um, the serpent sows a, a seed of doubt about uh, God's word. Presumably he knows what God told Adam back in Genesis chapter 2. This is what God had told Adam. He said, And the Lord God commanded the man, You're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. That's what God told the man back in chapter 2. But compare that with the serpent's question in Genesis 3. Did God really say you mustn't eat from any tree in the garden? Well, it's almost word for word, isn't it? God said they were free to eat from any tree in the garden. They could eat to their heart's content. He gives them permission to eat from any tree that they desire, except for one. Eve, I think she knows the commands. Um, perhaps Adam had told her, after all, um, she actually wasn't created back in Genesis 2. Uh, she hadn't been created yet. But um, reading Genesis chapter 3, it seems like she actually knows the answer. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. So this verse is very clear. Eve, she knew about the prohibition and she understood the consequences. But again, the serpent questions God's word. In verse 4, he says, you will not certainly die. God says one thing and the tempter says the opposite. And so who do we listen to? Um, as humans, I think we're very good at inventing reasons for doing the wrong thing. Well, it won't hurt anybody, I guess. It's just a little thing. It's just some innocent fun. I, I deserve this. The consequences can't be that bad, could they? We, think we invent all kinds of reasons to sin. Well, the serpent tempts Eve, uh, Eve to question God's word. Um, just because the Bible says so, do you really think it's true? Just because God said it, is it really what God says? And then today what we hear is this, surely an, an intelligent modern person like you wouldn't believe that old-fashioned business. Surely you wouldn't believe something like the Bible that was just made up in myths and mythology. And then people will say to us, there's no moral absolutes. Well, if it feels good, why don't you do it? Or everybody else is doing it, it'll be okay. That's what we do in our modern society. It's perfectly natural, they say, you were born that way. Well, these are the whispers that undermine God's goodness. And they undermine God's word. Surely, you see, a good God would give us everything we wanted. Surely, if God wanted to bless us, he'd give us everything that our hearts desire. He wouldn't hold anything back from you, would he? And the whispers, they undermine God's word and his promises. They make us question whether God is up to keeping his promises. Does God have authority to execute his promises? Does sin even matter to God? Or is it just a, a doctrine that's made up to, to keep us in line and to give us good morals and values? Is that what it's for? Well, it makes us question God's goodness and God's word and God's authority and even God's divinity. Look at verse 5. This is what the serpent says to, to Eve. He says, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You'll know good and evil. So the serpent holds out this possibility that somehow, somehow humans could become like God. Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't you love to be like God? With all of his creativity and all his authority, you could do whatever you want. And so as he holds out this possibility of becoming like God, he's sort of saying, I think God is holding something back from you. There's something that God knows that, that you don't. And, and if you knew it, wow, you would be something special, wouldn't you? God is keeping you like a creature. He doesn't want you really to be like him. Isn't that funny? Because we're made in the image of God. 
But the serpent says, no, 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 you could be more. You could be just like God. And they started to question themselves. And, and I think the first step towards sin is questioning God. They question God's good motives and they question his good provision and his good word and his authority and his majesty. So you undermine all of those and you're on a slippery slope. Second big idea, tasting evil. So Eve, she is sold on what the serpent says. She looks at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and she looks at it with a new kind of perspective. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. See, previously only God had made proclamations about what is good in creation and now Eve decides for herself what is good. She looks at this tree and she says, oh, that's good. It's very good. She makes a, a proclamation about what blessing looks like in eating. She makes a statement about what is right and wrong. God might say it's wrong, but I say it's right for me to do it because I want to. She writes the rules the way that she wants them to be written. So she takes and she eats and she gives some to Adam, verse 6, who was there with her also, we now find out, standing by passively. Men, did you notice that? Adam stands by this whole time and says nothing. Um, somebody once said, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Well, Adam does nothing. He could have spoken into the situation. He could have spoken truth. He could have rebuked the servant. He could have reminded his wife of God's good words. This creature was one of the creatures who Adam had named. Surely he could have told it what to do. He had authority over it, did he not? But instead, Adam does nothing. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 2 that Adam was not deceived. It's not like he, he listened and said, oh, wow, I, I, he wasn't deceived at all. He just wanted to sin. He had no excuse. He just had this unadulterated desire for more than what God had already given him, which is kind of ridiculous because he already had dominion over everything. He was already the king of the world, was he not? But that wasn't enough for Adam. He wanted more. And in fact, Eve wanted more than what God had given them as well. They both wanted to do what God had forbidden them to do. And so, I did kind of wonder what exactly is this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Back in Genesis 2, it was one of the two trees specifically named amongst all the other trees. Um, and by the way, back in Genesis 2 verse 9, all of the trees are described as pleasing to the eye and good for food. So it's not like all the other trees were horrible and this is the only good looking tree. They were all good. So why do they choose this one? In the middle of the garden was the tree of life. Uh, I'm not going to say much about that. But there was also the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And lots of people ask, why would God put this tree, this forbidden tree, in the middle of the garden? Uh, again, some people argue that God is cruel for putting it there. And he torments and tempts his people that he created just so that he can judge them and strike them down. But that doesn't gel with the goodness of creation, does it? I mean, if God is good, he can only act in ways that reflect his character. And so we can't see this tree of the knowledge of good and evil as some kind of cruel torment and temptation that God has put there. No, we, we have to see it as part of the good things that God has put in the world. It's part of the way that God has created the world. He's given humans free will and he's given us moral responsibility to, to live in the world and to act in the world and to make our own decisions. But our decisions have consequences. 
every decision has consequences. And, you know, when you live with somebody else and, and you uh, make decisions, those consequences, or the, the decisions always have consequences on other people. So if you live in a completely selfish way, the decision that you make to be selfish has consequences for everybody else in the relationship. Come back to the Bible. So being made in the image of, our God, of God, right? our relationships are meant to reflect the relationships within the Trinity. They're meant to imitate them. So the Father, the, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they're an, an example of how we live in community um, with the interests of others in mind. Um, Jesus, who's the Son, he doesn't grasp to be like the Father. He doesn't grasp at the Father's role. We see that in Philippians 2. Um, instead, Jesus is happy to remain in his role um, as the Son. But that doesn't mean he's less dignified than the Father, nor does he sort of reach and say, I wish I was the Father. He's happy to be the Son. And same with the Holy Spirit. But Adam and Eve, when they're given the opportunity to grasp for more, that's exactly what they do. When they want to become like God, that's the opportunity. They say, yes, I will, I will climb to the top of the heap. Um, I grew up in a private school that was exactly like that. I think we almost had classes on how to tread on everybody else to get to the top. Success was everything. And uh, you might not have gone to a school like that, but as sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, I think we all have that same propensity to want to climb to the top of the heap, to want more, to be more, to do more, to have more. We all have that. We all grasp for more. Well, Adam and Eve thought that they might become wise by eating from this tree. And in one sense, they did become wise. Their eyes were opened. But what they learned about was evil. Uh, years ago, I was traveling in France. I was by myself. And my father had arranged for me to stay with um, a family. He'd, he'd met the, the, the man uh, as part of a business deal. And so I went and stayed with this family for the weekend. Mum, dad, a couple of little kids. And uh, we had a great weekend. And uh, anyway, on the, on the Sunday, I was about to leave. And the father says to me, it was great to meet you. And his young son, face drops. And he says, he's a stranger? So all week long, all weekend long, the parents had said, oh, we're old friends. We, we've known each other for a long time. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, this child understands their parents have lied to them. They've let a stranger into the house. We all know you can't talk to strangers, let alone let them stay in your house. It's a white lie, but this kid understands for the first time that his parents are not all good. They can lie to him. And there's a moment for all of us like that, um, when we know good and evil. It happens in every relationship. Our parents let us down, or our, our children let us down, our husband or wife lets us down, our uh, friends let us down. Secrets come to light that you can hardly imagine. And they make you question everything you thought you knew about a person. Or worse, your eyes are opened to your own capacity for evil. That's the worst. And that was Adam and Eve. Verse 7, their, their eyes were open and suddenly they realized that they were naked. Where previously they had nothing to hide, now they feel shame. And they've tasted evil. And that brings us to our third big idea, shifting the blame. Um, Adam and Eve, they don't just hide their nakedness. Um, they hide from God as if God might perhaps not notice what they've done. <laughs> it's pathetic, really, isn't it? But the all-knowing God knows, and he confronts Adam, verse 9. The Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And the man answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, 
who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And what does Adam do? He shifts the blame. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit and I ate it. Shifts it in two directions. He blames the woman and then he blames God. Blames the woman for giving him the fruit. Blames God for giving him the woman. He accepts no responsibility for his own actions, does he? And the woman, she does the same thing. Verse 13, she points at the devil. It was the serpent who deceived me and, and, and I ate. It's the serpent's fault, she claims. Um, it strikes me how easily we shift the blame when we do something wrong. Um, other factors might well have been at play, but instead of taking our own responsibility, we, we blame other people or other influences or other circumstances. We might even blame God for our sin. But at the end of the day, we're each responsible for the choices that we make in this world. But God doesn't tempt us, does he? God doesn't, he's not the one who leads us into sin. And the New Testament, James says, when tempted, nobody should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire. And they're enticed. And then after sin, uh, sorry, after desire is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, James says. Don't be deceived. When we sin, it's because we choose to. It's tough preaching a sermon about sin because the world has spent thousands of years preaching a different sermon about sin. They've downplayed the seriousness of sin and we all preach that sermon in our hearts too. Does God really say that there are consequences for the way that we act? Does God even care? Why should we listen to God when there are so many fun things we could do in life? Surely God is just trying to be a killjoy. Being a Christian would be boring, wouldn't it? You'd have to give up everything fun. That's the message the world has been preaching about sin for thousands of years. But this passage today reminds us that sin lurks inside every one of us. Each of us would have done the same thing in our place of our first parents, Adam and Eve. So the world likes to say that people are intrinsically good and that, you know, with enough education, we could eradicate evil. Don't be deceived, brothers and sisters. Those of you who are teachers or parents know. We all question God at times. And we've all tasted evil. And we all want to shift the blame away from ourselves. We all want to minimize sin. We all want to justify ourselves in the face of God. But no matter what you do, this passage reminds us that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Um, our story, this passage is our story as much as it's Adam's and Eve's. Um, we all sin. And, and I don't say this to induce guilt. This passage actually helps us to understand ourselves. Uh, it helps us to understand how we tick and wh why we're prone to anger or lust or jealousy or whatever your besetting sin is. I don't think God gives us this passage just to condemn us. Because actually the rest of the Bible from the very next verse, from 3 verse 14 on, is a story of God undoing the effects of sin and restoring us back to the way that he created us to be. And that story ends in the, in the death of Jesus Christ who dies, this perfect person, this perfect human, so that we can receive his righteousness as a gift. That's the rest of the whole Bible. So it's not here to condemn us, but it's here to remind us we can't just downplay our sin or ignore it. We need a saviour. Genesis chapter 3, it's a, it's a complex passage. Lots of questions, lots of elements, lots of ingredients. It has a simple message though. When we live apart from the way that God has intended us to live, things get messed up very quickly. Leads to shame and exposure 
and all of that. It's not good for us. It's not good for those around us. And it has serious consequences that we'll explore next week. But our sin is not the end of the story. God wants to fix the problem. He wants to restore us to life the way that he created us to be. And it starts with acknowledging our sin problem. And you know, every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, we actually acknowledge our sin problem when we pray, Father, forgive us. So, um, why don't we do that? Um, I think it's going to come up on the screen. Is that right? Do we have the Lord's Prayer in there? We do. Why don't we pray these words together as we begin our time of prayer? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. Well, let's continue just in prayer for a moment. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would give us a true sense of our sinfulness. Remind us that we don't always follow your ways. And Father, where there are sins for us to admit and to confess, help us to come to you. And we ask, Father, that you would deal with our shame and our guilt. And we pray that you would cover us in the righteousness of Christ. We thank you that by his death, we are forgiven. And so, Heavenly Father, help us to know that you love us. Help us to know that you want to forgive us. And help us to be restored and remade in the image that you created us to be made in. Help us to live for you today and every day. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.